A lot of folks I was talking to for this story just repeatedly said, look, we saw what worked. When you give aid to families, when you give money to people, they feed themselves. People are tweeting at me like, this isn't rocket science. Well, okay, yeah, it's not. But that's still the, the lesson that Washington is learning right now. When you give aid to families, you know, food insecurity goes down. We see that very, very clearly. So, yeah, you have a lot of progressive, you know, policymakers and anti-hunger advocates now asking, if we see so clearly what works, why not end food insecurity in the richest country on earth? Hey there, Pulse Check listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel continuing our special series on the coronavirus outbreak. Today, I'm talking with our food and agriculture reporter, Helena bottomiller Evich about how the coronavirus pandemic has shined a new light on how we might be able to end hunger in America. If you talk to economists about food insecurity, the first thing they will tell you is that food insecurity was a problem before the pandemic, and it is going to be a problem after the pandemic. This country has a lot of low-wage workers, low-income households who, before this crisis, were absolutely struggling to make ends meet. You know, they might have been one car breakdown or healthcare incident away from you know, bankruptcy or not making the rent. So there was a lot of families in this country that were in a precarious position before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And when COVID-19 hit, we really upended the economy in a way that was unprecedented. And so how Washington responds to that has been a big question. We have thrown unprecedented amounts of aid at American families and businesses during this time. And it has really given policymakers a chance to see how much households respond to influxes of aid. So during the pandemic, USDA just released numbers that suggest that actually food insecurity rates did not go up during the pandemic, which I think will be surprising for a lot of people. Hmm. What did you expect to happen during the pandemic? So I thought food insecurity uh, probably would go up in 2020. I mean, this was an unprecedented economic shock. But what I think we have to remember if we zoom out even further is Washington really responded to this crisis in a way that was much more aggressive than what we did after the Great Recession. So we increased food stamp benefits aggressively. We increased unemployment insurance payments. We did three rounds of stimulus. We did a new pandemic food program for you know children who were learning virtually. We did universal free meals in schools for the first time. And now we're doing child tax credit payments that are really targeted at reducing child poverty. I mean, we really kind of threw the kitchen sink at this crisis. And now we seem to be seeing that the like hardship was not nearly as bad as people had feared. Mm -hmm. One of the economists I was talking to immediately when these numbers came out from USDA, you know, he said, this is amazing. Like, use the word amazing, which, you know, a lot of times academics are not really uh, using. And I think a lot of people agree with that. It is, it is a pretty incredible finding. But what it does mask is there's a lot of inequities in food insecurity. You know, Black and Hispanic households tend to have nearly twice the rates of food insecurity of white households. That was true before the pandemic, and it is still true today. And 
some of these disparities may have even been worsened during the pandemic. Hmm. I want to sort of put this into perspective for people because, I mean, as you mentioned, it is surprising that hunger, that food insecurity didn't go up um, a bunch like some people might have expected as the economy was shutting down, as people were losing jobs, as schools were closing down. Um, and you mentioned it's because of all this aid that we we push towards people to try to prevent that from happening. I mean, how does that compare to historically how we've treated this issue in the U.S.? Like, how much of a difference is what we're seeing and what we've been seeing throughout the pandemic to what we've had previously in the country? I think it's fair to say that the pandemic response has been, you know, far and away, just far and away more aid than the government has ever really targeted at the public during any crisis or during any time. I mean, rounds of stimulus, uh, increased food stamp benefits, food stamp spending or supplemental nutrition assistance program or SNAP spending has actually doubled month over month compared to pre-pandemic. So we're targeting a lot more aid at low-income families, but we also unleashed a lot of aid at you know middle-income families and we've spent trillions of dollars. I mean, I think the overall cost has already surpassed spending on World War II. So you have a new story for Politico out today looking at what we can learn from this situation, how despite the economic hardships of the pandemic, we haven't seen a massive increase in hunger in the U.S. Um, and whether the country can look at this situation and say, hey, we might have figured out how to solve this problem. Let's do this. What do you think would need to happen to make that come true? And do you think it will? I think that is a good question. And I don't know what the answer is yet from Washington. I don't think Congress has been particularly focused on ending food insecurity, uh, but the pandemic has certainly uh, raised a lot of these big picture questions. And if you look at even just smaller interventions, like the child tax credit, which began in July and um, August, you can see, you know, the U.S. Census Bureau is doing really interesting almost near real-time tracking of households. And you can see when those payments hit households with children, you know, the the percentage of those households that are struggling to put food on the table, I mean, went down dramatically. So again, it's seeing that lever of like, if you give aid to families, it's easier to provide for those families. So we've just seen this this pattern repeat itself over and over. Did you speak to any families or individual people who have seen their situation change because of the benefits that they're getting during the pandemic? Yes. I talked to uh, one advocate who works with low-income people in Los Angeles and works with a lot of people who are unhoused and farm workers and in Southern California. And she was like, I've seen no let up in need, right? Like there's a lot of people who are still missed, uh, even they, they, they might not even be getting aid that they qualify for. They might not be getting stimulus checks. They might not know they qualify for a child tax credit. So there are definitely families that are still slipping through the cracks, and there's a lot of inequity. That said, I talked to a lot of families who see, especially like the child tax credit and the increases in SNAP and the stimulus payments as being absolutely essential to the financial security they're feeling right now. Um, the story uh, features a mother of six from Nashville, and she 
said it's the first time in nearly two decades that she feels food secure, that she is not stressed about how to feed her family. And I think it's important to remember that in all these statistics, our families that are just trying to get by, they're trying to make it work day in and day out. And for millions of families, it's a little bit easier with the help that they've been getting from Washington. So most of the benefits that have become a lifeline for families, for parents, for kids over this time, they're temporary, right? Well, the child tax credit is supposed to go through the end of the year, and there's a push from the Biden administration and some Democrats to try to extend that or even make Mm -hmm. it permanent. And we don't know what's going to happen with that. Uh, Pandemic plus-ups are expiring now. Mm. Uh, Most of the SNAP increases will continue as long as states are in a state of emergency, which should, you know, it's going to vary state by state. Some states have already pulled that back. Um, so yeah, this this aid is largely not permanent, but I think there's a lot of, uh, if you zoom out, there are going to be a lot of permanent changes to the safety net from this. There are now a lot of uh, advocates pushing for universal free meals in schools to be permanent. A lot of schools have seen it as being a lot more convenient, you know, a lot less paperwork to try to figure out who is uh, eligible based on income, right? So if you just give everyone free meals at school, it cuts down on paperwork, cuts down on stigma. So there's examples of things like that that could end up sticking around. The pandemic EBT program, which helps replace meals that kids miss either while schools are closed or during the summer, that looks like it's going to stick around permanently. So there are going to be real lasting changes that come from this pandemic. And I think it remains to be seen how aggressive Washington is in you know, shoring up some of the things that worked or whether or not we're going to let you know more and more of this expire. And there are definitely anti-hunger advocates that are really concerned about what will happen if Washington lets up. I know journalists like you hate trying to predict the future. But I mean, as someone who has been tracking food and hunger and social programs in the U.S. for years and is seeing, you know, what's happening at this moment, um, but also is aware of of the politics in Washington, how do you think we are going to end up looking back on this moment? I think we're going to learn a lot from the pandemic. I am not sure yet how the politics will change, if they will change. I mean, just a couple of years ago, I was covering the farm bill, and there was a really intense debate over whether or not we should have stricter work requirements for um, able-bodied adults without children on the SNAP program. And there was just this like year-long knockdown drag-out fight over that. And, you know, Republicans were arguing that basically, you know, there were too many people on the SNAP program and they weren't working enough. And, you know, the Biden administration just a couple of weeks ago increased pre-pandemic SNAP benefit levels by about 27%. And I did not have a single Republican lawmaker in my inbox complaining about that. Hmm. So it, I think the the politics, at least temporarily, have sort of shifted. I don't know that that will continue, uh, but we'll have to see. Well, that makes me wonder. I mean, what do you think was behind the politics, the political split on this before the pandemic? Like, why didn't legislators pay as much attention as as what might be needed to help with hunger before COVID? What was behind political issues like before what we're seeing now? Well, I think there's long been 
a bipartisan recognition that, you know, people shouldn't go hungry in, you know, the greatest and wealthiest country on earth. Like, I, th- I think there is um, a shared sense that, that that is a value we have. But where you get locked in partisan fights is, you know, what role does government play in that? And what, you know, what what is the appropriate size of these programs? What is the appropriate size of government? I think it kind of gets at a lot of the tension we have long had in this country over, you know, what do we see as government's job? Is it government's job to make sure that, you know, families can afford to feed themselves? Should we have limits? Should we target aid to only the very, very low-income households in our country? I mean, I don't think there's ever been real broad agreement on how to go about it. So, you know, there's been a long Republican concern that if you if you make benefits like food stamps or even unemployment or other, you know, forms of aid, if you make them too generous, then maybe people won't want to work and that'll be bad for the economy. And there's there's long been debates about that. Like what are the unintended consequences of, you know, shoring up support for families like this? And, you know, economists fiercely debate these things. There's still a fierce debate over whether or not gutting, you know, direct cash assistance during welfare for- reform reduced poverty. So there's a lot of um, disagreement about how you get there. I think there is a shared uh, goal and a shared commitment to making sure that people don't go hungry in this country. All right, that's the show for this week. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and big thanks to Helena bottomiller Evich from our food and agriculture team for joining me. Helena reported this story as part of our Recovery Lab series, which looks at some of the bold ideas driving our recovery from the pandemic. You can find a link to that in this episode's show notes. Be sure to subscribe to Pulse Check wherever you're listening, and check out the trailer to our new show, Global Insider, coming out next week. Just search for Global Insider wherever you get your podcasts. Pulse Check's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Yep, we're rolling. I'm Ryan Heath, and for seven years, I've been writing a newsletter about global affairs, covering the CEOs who shape the economy, the lawmakers who set the rules, and the innovators who bend them. In that time, I've gotten to know a lot of them and their world pretty well. What do you think the longest pause is someone's ever taken when you've asked them, like, a really hard question? Oh, that's easy. Um, It was Emmanuel Macron, and I asked him when was the last time he'd built a piece of IKEA furniture, and... The dude could not answer the question. I think Tony Blair certainly flirts with his eyes. Is there an airport tip you have? There is an amazing bakery at Copenhagen Airport called Hakasuset. <laughs> I can never say it right. <laughs> now I'm doing a different kind of interview with the same sources I've kept tabs on for years, more personal conversations that usually happen behind closed doors in Davos and the UN. Is it just something that you have to accept is out of your control now? Of course I'm worried. We're doing this in a pandemic. We all have to be worried. Every week, there'll be activists, regulators, business leaders, like NATO's Jens Stoltenberg and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the US ambassador to the UN. 
African leaders need to spend more time with their young people and they need to empower them to lead in the future. The balance of power is always shifting. Global Insider is how you keep up. We launch September 15th in this feed. See you there. Lauke Husa. Lauke Husa. Lauke Husa. <laughs> we're, we're humans, not robots, so I can't make it sound like the robot.